Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. In this edition, we're talking about the past and future of the Opal Creek Wilderness and Jawbone Flats following historic wildfires that burned the ancient forest last September. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, David, today we are going to talk about one of the most storied and beautiful spots in Oregon, the Opal Creek Wilderness and Scenic Recreation Area. Unfortunately, this beloved area was heavily impacted by last September's Labor Day fires. And in this episode, we're going to talk about what happened and what comes next with Dwayne Canfield, Executive Director of the Opal Creek Ancient Forest Center at Jawbone Flats. But before we get into that, we wanted to quickly mention something that may provide additional context. Recently, we published a story with over 60 photos that actually show some of the better known outdoor recreation spots within the scar of the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head fires. The photos are important because most of those areas are closed long term and people probably won't be able to get in to see firsthand what those places look like for a long time to come. You can find a link to that story at statesofjournal.com slash explore. Look for this episode and the link will be in there. Yeah, for me, the photos are important because it shows places where I just don't know how they fared. Uh, the pictures include Opal Creek, Olali Lake, the Mount Jefferson Wilderness, along with some smaller spots like Tumble Lake, Three Pools, and Henline Falls. You know, we've reported on burn severity maps and firsthand accounts, but until you see it, it's not quite the same. So anyway, we've got a large gallery that gives you a pretty good sense of where we stand at this moment. So after seeing the photos for the first time, what what were what are your thoughts? Honestly, I think it's best just for, for everybody to look for themselves and kind of take from it what they can. I mean, Overall, it's pretty rough. Most of these places were burned significantly and they look pretty different. A small bit of good news is that while we don't have a great photo, the popular Alpine Lakes and Meadow of Jefferson Park sounds like it's in pretty good shape. So that's something. Uh, Olali Lake Resort also survived. So that's a touch of positive news. But again, check out the photos for yourself. Okay, up next, we're talking all things Opal Creek with the executive director of the Ancient Forest Center. All right, well, today might be a little bit of an emotional episode, um, and that's because we are talking about the past and future of the Opal Creek area, one of the most storied and beautiful spots in Oregon, and unfortunately, one of the areas hit hardest by last September's Labor Day fires. To help us understand what happened and what comes next, I'm joined by Dwayne Canfield, Executive Director of the Opal Creek Ancient Forest Center. Dwayne, thanks for being here and help us talk through what's frankly kind of a difficult topic. Yeah, I'm happy to be here for the conversation. All right, so just a little background. Uh, Dwayne and I have been talking on a pretty regular basis ever since a small wildfire was first spotted in a remote part of the Opal Creek Wilderness in mid-August. At first, we were a little worried, but I don't think anyone expected what ended up happening. 
The Beachy Creek Fire exploded on the historic dry winds Labor Day nights, eventually morphing into one of the biggest disasters in state history. The fire burned most of the buildings at Jawbone Flats and the Ancient Forest Center and dramatically impacted the surrounding wilderness and forest. The Opal Creek area is expected to stay closed for a year or two at least. So, Dwayne, to start, it's been seven months now. So have you adjusted to this new reality or is there still a sense of disbelief about kind of what happened and where we are now? Well, it's uh, the chance to, to visit at Jawbone and see see what's there has helped a lot with, uh, you know, the closure that I think was needed after the, the grief of everything that happened. Uh, a lot of people haven't had that opportunity. And, uh, you know, I hope, I hope particularly for some of our other uh, for our community that they get a chance to do that. And uh, but that's still a ways off. We are a long way from access. The the reality has absolutely sunk in. And a big part of what we're working on as an organization is where do where do we go from here and how do we get there? And uh, that's something that we're doing right now with a with a great deal of uncertainty around what's possible. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the state of Opal Creek area right now. So while the area is closed, we've published a number of photos that show the area from Henline Falls to Three Pools up to the Opal Creek Trail. It, it looks pretty burned, um, but you've actually flown in there, like you mentioned, you've been on the ground at Jawbone Flats. So generally, what's the status of the area? I mean, how would you describe it for people who have not seen it yet? The, the area in Jawbone Flats is, you know, it was, it was burned pretty severely. And there were a few, few buildings spared. One of our cabins did not burn. And a, a classroom in the Outdoor classroom in the meadow did not burn, and our water treatment plant did not burn. So it was a good a silver lining to the rest of the damage. And unfortunately, none of the none of the historic cabins survived. They all burned up. I saw the video actually of you flying in there, and it was it was really really emotional, and it, it was a, a touching video to see you guys return there and. I think there was some feeling that that I got from you that, you know, Jawbone d- didn't look maybe as bad as you expected to. That there was like a little that there was life there, that there was some green there, and that there was there was something. Is am I accurate there? Yeah, that's that's right. So when you land in the meadow, uh, you you see a, a lot of green trees, and you see that uh, mostly the the meadow didn't didn't burn heavily. So there was not uh, a sense of destruction standing there. And then as you went into camp, crossing the Battle Axe Bridge, which was pretty severely burned, uh, but still, still crossable, you know, it got worse. And then the, the place where the, the staff cabins were up, up on the hill, that was, that was completely decimated. And, and most of the trees burned there. And the the surrounding areas, um, 
can can you give me a feel for that? I mean, it's it's looks kind of depressing um, from the photos and and the aerial stuff, but it, it looked like the the little North Sanium Canyon in particular seemed like it got hit the hardest because it kind of funneled that fire through. Is that an accurate description of that area? Yeah. So it uh, the fire came down Opal Creek and uh, was obviously really cooking when it got to Opal Pool. That area is absolutely decimated. Sadly, it will be it will be a long time before that recovers. You know, contrasting the the fire did not mostly get over the ridge into the battle axe drainage. So there is a lot of uh, old growth forest remaining in that area, which is uh, which is awesome that we still have so close to our site, plenty of, uh, you know, real forest. Gotcha. All right. So in this episode, I, I want to focus on what comes next in the future. But before we do that, uh, I just we, we need to acknowledge a, a really striking human loss. And that was the death of George Atia. For those that don't know, George was the godfather of the effort to stop logging in the Opal Creek area during the 1970s and 80s and into the 90s. He laid the groundwork for what became the Opal Creek that people would know and, and fall in love with, the place where you know giant old growth trees rose over emerald swimming holes. I mean, Oregon has plenty of streams that are not dissimilar from Opal Creek in the Cascade foothills, but what made this one unique was just the size of the trees and the richness of the totally intact ecosystem and the size of the roadless area, which again, it just doesn't happen many other places in the Cascade foothills in Oregon. A lot of people, you know, kind of complained about the crowds that arrived, but if you wanted to go off trail in Opal Creek between Opal Lake and Jawbone Flats, you could have a, just a really wild experience among just gigantic trees that you couldn't anywhere else in Oregon. And that's all thanks in large part to George. Um, Clear-cut boundary markers were first placed in Opal Creek in 1981, and George fought for decades to stop that area from being cut. That George ended up dying in the same fire that swept across his beloved wilderness is something that's, man, it's just beyond words. I wrote a lot about him as a reporter, but Dwayne, what's been the reaction to the loss of George these past few months, and, and what's kind of his legacy in looking back and looking forward? Well, that's the the biggest tragedy for for us and and obviously for his family and you know George had a big personality and and he had been spending quite a bit of time at Jawbone Flats and and uh, you know it, it it will be hard to go back there without his presence and uh, you know in a in a COVID year it's been it's been tough to uh, to not really be able to to celebrate him in the place that he loved most, and that was the Opal Creek Wilderness, and and so hopefully at some point we will be able to do that as as a community um, to to properly recognize him in that place. He he was uh, you know some of the traits that. Uh, allowed him to be successful as a, an environmentalist and an activist, you know, also um, made him a, a challenge uh, from time to time. He was stubborn and 
wouldn't take no for an answer. And, uh, you know, but, but he was a treasure for, for the staff, his, his knowledge of the history and the things that happened there and where to, um, where to go and how to get there was unbelievable. And, uh, he'll be missed a lot. So it's sort of tough to, to move on and start thinking about the future, but in looking forward, there are kind of two questions that jump out to me. The first is what comes next for Opal Creek, the nonprofit and, and organization that you run. And then second, what comes next for the forest itself? So let's start with the organization. What is the ancient forest center doing this summer in the absence of, you know, the, the base camp? Uh, what's your mission this summer and next summer and, and what are you focused on right now? So we have a few goals right now. One is uh, offering uh, expeditions in other parts of the Oregon Cascades. So we have, uh, we have tr trips for youth and trips for adults and, and private trips for people that want to take their own group out and customize a trip. And that's going well. So we're, we'll be in the Jefferson wilderness. We have uh, some permits for three sisters, which is going to be a hard place to get to this summer with the, with the new permit system. Uh, Strawberry wilderness, Mount Thielson and Elkhorn. So we're trying out some new, new areas and, and we hope to have a, a good year of getting getting kids out into the wilderness again, which really is our mission, is those transformative experiences that that are hard to have anywhere else like they are out in the woods where you're learning how to uh, be resilient yourself. Do you have a feel when you'll be able to get back on site at Jawbone Flats and start rebuilding or at least planning what comes next for that, for that site? I mean, if that's your intent. Uh, yeah, that... That is the intent. You know, there are many challenges. There are many uh, unanswered questions regarding access at this point. And, uh, but we are making plans now. We have a, a lot of fantastic uh, firms that uh, do uh, sustainable architecture and design and, and engineering that have offered to, to help us build that plan out. So, We've started, we're started the work on that. And we hope to be able to get some of those people in this year before it's out. Still, it may be by foot, but uh, um, that that is the goal so that we can start to build that, uh, that site plan. Jawbone Flats was a, a really unique place. Um, you know, if you hadn't been there, it was kind of part wilderness village, part museum, part education center you know, part, you know, getaway. It, are, did, how do you feel about being able to replicate that, that experience? Do you think you can, when you, when you do rebuild it, that it'll, it'll look similar or have a similar vibe? Um, I mean, is that the goal there? The, the goal is not clear yet. Clear yet. We're just starting the process. I think uh, we have a, we have a number of, of, factors that we have to consider. One is, uh, you know, sustainability. One is, you know, the, the reality of being in a wildfire area. So can it with, can what we build 
better withstand fire. And, uh, you know, we obviously want, want it to work great for, for our education programs. Admittedly, our, our old facility was, uh, was what it was. And, and it was an amazing place and historic and it had a, an awesome feel as, as you described, but, uh, it wasn't always great for the education programs. So there's a, a bit of a balancing act that we'll have to, to manage as we move forward with that design. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you know, this, the second piece of what comes next for this specific area is obviously going to be access or recreational access. The entire area is closed up very tight this summer. Um, actually, the entire North Fork Canyon is off limits all the way down to Highway 22. So this year is obviously gone for the general public. Do you have a, a feel for the process of how this area opens? Uh, do you see it being kind of a, a, a gradual thing? Um, how should people that love this area and want to see it again kind of manage their expectations, in your opinion? So the the forest is closed and... and having wandered around a little bit around Jolland Flats, you know, there are, there are many trees down. Um, and you know, it's not, it's not easy to get around yet. And, and the reality is there, nobody will be driving in there until maybe late this year and possibly not until next year, uh, through, through that road the forest service has a lot of work to do and, uh, and it's not, uh, it's not going to open anytime soon. It's just not going to be safe for, for people. The, the expectation I would have would be, um, sometime in 2022. The good news is, you know, time is, time is our friend in allowing the forest to, to, uh, recover and also allow the, the trees that are going to fall to do so because, uh, you know, that often happens quickly. And then the ones that are left over time are, are ones that are likely to stand for a while. Well, one of the, the difficult issues that, that ties into what you're talking about is the issue of hazard tree removal. Now, there's a massive effort uh, statewide to make places and roadways safer after, you know, a million acres burned last summer. But it's come with some accusations, particularly to the state, that the state has been too aggressive in removing trees that may not have been dead. To be clear, this effort hasn't started yet um, around Opal Creek, and the Forest Service is expected to release their plans for how they're going to do this in the next week or two. They've taken pains to say that they're going to do it differently. But what are you looking for in terms of how we restore access to this area, how we look at trees that were scorched, but maybe not killed? I mean, what do you want to see from the Forest Service when they start going through that process? Yeah, that, you know, I, I would hate to be the Forest Service right now. They have, uh, you know, they have pressures from, from all sides and, uh, you know this this place in particular, giving the long, long history and the the hallowed nature of it, as this, uh, you know, basically place that uh, was was more recently protected. So the the relationships that people have with the place are are deep. You know that's why I think when we asked our community to respond to their 
plan, we got so many people to to make public comments, and and that had the effect of, um, you know, making sure that they're a little more careful. They are the district office uh, got got involved, and you know, I think that's a good thing. And we've learned a lot about the process in our conversations with them. And I got to say, just from a, a relationship perspective, they're providing great uh, support for us uh, in a number of ways. And, and we really appreciate the relationship we have with the Forest Service. And, you know, we're trying to make sure that this, uh, this overzealous removal doesn't happen in a place that's you know, near and dear to our heart. So it's a balancing act. And we also want access and we want the place to be deemed safe for people. So we're, we're also in a balancing act for how, how we manage this. Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing because, you know, everyone wants to get back in there, but to get back in there, you have to, you have to look at all the trees and maybe some of them have to come down. So would you advocate for kind of, you know, um, trying to open up the the main thoroughfares and then taking a lighter touch on, on side roads or what, what do you think is the is the best solution there the best solution is uh you know slowing down i think the the sense of urgency that was was built for that action was was probably more than necessary and uh so that idea of of for example, road 2209, which goes from the forest boundary to the trailhead, is a wide, you know, two-way road, fairly well-maintained, at least now, and, uh, you know, hasn't, hasn't seen a lot of tree fall along it. And uh, so that getting that cleared seems pretty straightforward. The road past the Trail past the trailhead, past the gate, up to Jawbone Flats is a different story, and and that's one that uh, we want to see a, a more careful consideration, given just how close it sits to the um, Little North Fork, and you know how steep the slopes are off of it, and you know just the the nature of it. The reality is, though, it was burned burned pretty badly, and and so. Some trees are going to have to come down, and, and we recognize that that's, uh, that's a reality of this process. So in, in the long term, whether it's a year or two or three, what do you, what do you envision for the, the future of the Opal Creek area? I mean, it, it took three years to completely reopen the, the Columbia Gorge that was burned by the Eagle Creek fire. But now that it's open, it's not that terribly different. You can tell a fire went through there, but it's not a fundamentally different place. So do you think a similar recovery is possible at Opal Creek? I mean, so much of it was tied up in, in the big trees there and a lot of them have been killed and are going to look different. But do you still see a place where people are going to be able to go in there and have a forest experience and see waterfalls and, you know, swim in the swimming holes and things like that? Like, what, what do you see long term, you know, three to five years out, maybe even 10 years out for this area? For, uh, for Opal Creek Wilderness and, and the scenic recreation area, it's a different experience than the gorge. The gorge is, is these expansive vistas. Um, and 
you know, our, our draw was of course the trees and the water and, uh, you know, the trees are, are in places severely burned and, and it's going to take a long time for, for that to recover. And, uh, you know, it may always have a different feel, but it will recover. And we're already seeing, you know, even in October when we first went in and then again in earlier this month when we went back in, you know, significant uh, sprouting of the sorts of, of vegetation you see after a fire. We bare grass and ferns and and it, it will not be a, a moon escape for long. In fact, this year, I'm sure it will will be green in a lot of places. And and then those trees, when they when they finally lose their bark and they're standing there and they they silver with age, you know, there will be a different kind of beauty there. And then there are places like the battle axe drainage that has limited fire damage. So that will begin to look like it did in a very rapid fashion in some areas. It'll you won't be able to tell that there was a fire nearby even. Yeah. So it's going to be a mix of experiences for people. Well, one thing that sticks out to me, um, you know, I was in Southern Oregon for a long time and you had uh, the Calamiopsis, which burned, you know, three times over the course of, you know, 20 or 30 years. And it was actually interesting and educational to be in there to look at like, Okay, here's the the uh, the scar from the biscuit fire, and you could see kind of how it was growing. And then there was more impact from a different fire, and you could see that. And then there was areas that hadn't been touched by fire, so it was an interesting educational experience. And I'm just wondering, like in the future, once you get Jawbone Flats up and running again, whether that becomes part of the curriculum where you can, you know, walk around areas that were severely burned and look at how they're coming back, and then head over to Battle Axe and say, you know, this area wasn't burned. Here's the differences. Um, do you envision that being part of the educational experience up there in the future? Yeah, we're absolutely going to to integrate some fire ecology and, you know, the recovery of the burned area and the contrast with uh, the, the Battle Axe drainage where there isn't a lot of burning. And and possibly even start to uh, to do some uh, community science where we're collecting information because we have these two watersheds, one, one in a highly burned area, one in a mostly unburned area that, uh, meet at the confluence on our property. So it's, uh, it is a good opportunity to, to both learn and also teach in an environment where the, the, clarity of the impact of the world we live in now is pre present and very, very visible. Yeah. It also strikes me that, you know, the bull of the woods wilderness, which, you know, is, is very close there. I mean, originally, you know, bull of the woods and Opal Creek was going to be one large wilderness area itself. The bull of the woods wasn't burned in the same way. So you have that, you can still have that old growth experience. Um, not that far away. And right. Like, you know, when you look at that area as a whole, yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, you know, it's closed along with, with Opal Creek right now, just because it's hard to, hard to keep people from moving from one to the other. And, uh, but there's going to be ways to, to experience both, uh, burned and unburned forests and, and see what happens afterward. 
Yeah. And that's that's the future anyway. I mean, you know, like it or not, I mean, you look at California and there's just going to be there's a lot of forests that's burned down there. There's some that's not. There's some recovering, some that's more recent. So, you know, it, it feels like the the future of Oregon's forest is going to be this mix of burned and unburned forest. And historically, we had plenty of fires here, so it might seem different, but it's really, you know, it's what's supposed to happen to forests. Yeah, I hope we we start to recognize that uh, zero fires isn't necessarily the best the best thing for our wilderness areas. And, uh, you know, at some point, the suppression isn't going to work as a tactic. And, and uh, you know, that, that takes out some, you know, closely held beliefs about how you manage a, a wilderness. But there is a, there is a balancing act there, I think, and, and perhaps looking to the, the tribal methods for managing uh, forest could could yield some learnings that uh, may be applicable in our future too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors. Uh, when we return, uh, Dwayne and I will travel back in time a little bit, uh, talk about some of the history at Opal Creek and how the Beachy Creek kind of grew from this tiny puff of smoke into this, into this inferno. So stay with us. Um, we'll be right back. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water, and it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. Well, if you didn't know the backstory of Opal Creek, it literally goes back a century, centering on the mining outpost of Jawbone Flats. So once a place that mined everything from copper to silver, Jawbone became the unlikely nerve center for kind of a guerrilla movement to stop logging in the Opal Creek watershed led by the aforementioned George Atiyah. That effort led to the establishment of the Wilderness, Recreation, Area, and Ancient Forest Center in 1996. In fact, we're going to play a little bit of the audio that we took from George back in uh, just a few years ago talking about that fight. And he said, you're only eight years old. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. That started the whole fight for Opal Creek. Yeah, I was going to do whatever I could to do it. And I, in, inside me, I was willing to break any law and do anything to stop them. You only get to cut the old growth once and they didn't yeah. realize And that's one thing, we never, I never would let them cut the old growth. I wasn't looking at myself. I wasn't focused on myself. I was focused on this forest. The last ranger that I really remember told me, George, you're the environmentalist from hell. You're just one of the damn hippies. And this ain't no hippie resort. <laughs> well, that Opal Creek, I'm gonna have a cut within a month. Guess what? He's long gone. <laughs> if I wasn't fighting the Forest Service, I was in court constantly. Anything we could do, whether it's mining law, 
we just used everything that we could. So we built the bear trail. Well, and then the Forest Service came and said, well, there's a trail up there. Who built it? I said, we just saw some bears walking down one morning and with chainsaws? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that's how the bear trail was built. I wanted people into Opal Creek because we didn't have a trail at all. And by having people go there, they one, they saw it, and two, they became indebted to what was going on. So back back in normal times, and at this point, I'm talking, you know, even pre-pandemic. What was what was a day in the life like at Jawbone Flats during the summer? So, I mean, what kind of classes were you offering? Um, how did it all work together in this in this kind of singular location where you you know were renting out some of the cabins? You're having uh, education classes. Like, there was a lot going on out there. So, kind of take me through what what a normal summer would would look like back then. Yeah, really, the the place came alive in the spring with uh, outdoor school. So we're blessed to live in a state that uh, has a strong commitment to, to providing outdoor school for all of the students in the state. At least I hope that every student gets at least a, one chance to, to spend some time out of doors with outdoor school. And when, when that's going on, uh, it's a it's a buzz of activity in Chavo Flats. You know, during the summer, uh, of course, the kids are out of school, so there are a lot of them coming up for for backpacking expeditions, for workshops. You know, and then we have a chance for the public to rent the cabins when they're not being used for outdoor school, and uh, that has brought a lot of people to to the area as well. And then finally, you know, it was a popular hiking area, so. There were a lot of a lot of folks hiking up and through to to go visit uh, Opal Pool. One of the things that uh, I remember George telling me when uh, when we were writing that uh, we wrote like a twelve part series that looked at the history, kind of the past and present of Opal Creek in two thousand sixteen. And his favorite thing he said was coming across kids who hadn't had much experience in the outdoors, who maybe were from Portland, grew up in a very urban environment, and then they got to, to come out and, and experience this. So, I mean, that, that was a mission of Opal Creek and, you know, presumably still would. It's, it's taking kids from, you know, more urban areas or diverse backgrounds and, and bringing them into the forest, correct? Is that, is that a big part of the mission? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, our goal is to provide tr- transformative experiences that uh, lead people to kids and, and adults too, that to love the place and, and protect the place and other places like it, you know, ultimately we see these experiences as, as often indelible ones for the kids that have them. And, and this is a place where there's no internet, there's the devices become kind of useless. And what's interesting is this transformation happens and it happens rapidly as they're learning uh, about the place and the plants and the old trees. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to watch just how quickly the things that seem so important just fade away, you know, and a, a group of kids will be down on the ground looking at a newt or looking at the lichen that grows there. And that is what excites us. That's why we're, we're doing what we're doing. And it's also, you know, gratifying to see just how 
how different kids are after they've had this experience where they get to do things that they've never gotten to do. Well, in this final part of the podcast, we're going to take a look at how the Beachy Creek Fire started, grew, and then ultimately exploded into this pretty generational event. So, Dwayne, I'm looking at my notes, and it, it looks like the first time that we talked was August 16th, 2020. Um, that was the day the Beachy Creek Fire was first spotted in the Opal Creek Wilderness. So what do you remember about that day? If you can kind of take me back to that moment, um, what, what do you remember about that day in particular? Yeah, that, that was an interesting day because I was up in Opal Creek area at the time. Friday night, I hiked with my partner out to Battle Axe Crossing and we camped there for the night. Um, you know, and then we, we hiked back and that was the weekend of my friend's trip up there where they ran a bunch of the cabins and, you know, it was, uh, it was a nice, nice weekend. The weather was, uh, was beautiful. And then that, uh, Saturday night I camped, we camped in, uh, in Joblin Flats down, down toward the confluence. And I slept on a cot in, you know, hopes to see some stars and, you know, just the easiest possible. About 2 a.m., I would say, I was uh, woken up by raindrops. And, uh, you know, I was scrambling to get, uh, get shelter set up. And then it stopped. But while I was doing that, I saw a couple of lightning strikes up up the Opal Creek drainage and, you know, didn't think much of it. it. You know, it happens, happens up there all the time during the summer and, uh, and then got up and had breakfast and, and headed out on Sunday, the day the fire started. And not long after I got home, I got the call that there had been a fire spotted that was not far from, from Joblin Flats. And, uh, you know, that, that first day, we didn't really know much about it. We knew it was was up the, the Opal Creek drainage, but we didn't know how big it was. We didn't know what the conditions were. And so out of an abundance of caution, we, for the first time since the place was formed, we completely evacuated everybody. So Joblin Flats was was empty for the first time. And that was, uh, that was the period of time, even though we did know that the forest service was, was already fighting it hard on, on Sunday that we just didn't know what was going to happen. I think I remember you, it, maybe it was you or somebody who was there kind of describing uh, smoke coming down through the valley that you could kind of smell and that was kind of filling the area. So what was it, what was it like on the, on the ground from either your experience or from what you were told from the people that were working up there? Yeah, there was, there was smoke definitely. And, and uh, at times the, the plume was visible, um, but it was small and, and, you know, the, it's hard to judge the distance. So nobody really knew how far away it was. That was a busy weekend, as I recall. I mean, because of the pandemic, in part, uh, the Opal Creek area had had just almost record crowds uh, that that entire season, the, the summer of 2020. What was it like trying to get all of those 
people out of there? Was it was it a smooth operation? Was it kind of halting? Um, what was it like trying to evacuate, you know, an area where people are all over the place? The blessing of that was we didn't have anybody up there after midday on, on Sunday. So everybody that had been staying was uh, was already headed out. But there were a lot of a lot of hikers there. We, you know, helped helped alert people and the the staff hauled some of the people out in a van. And uh, you know, it was a little bit of chaos because you know, you you have that uncertainty by not knowing really what's going on for sure. Just that there's a fire and we're evacuating and you know, you should you should make your way out of here as well for for everybody that we saw. Well, what were your immediate thoughts on the potential of the fire? I remember that, you know, I think we were all a little bit worried, but you know, again, this is a historically pretty wet, um, you know, ancient forest that doesn't, you know, burn at high intervals. I think the biggest story during that period is that they closed the whole thing to recreation. So people were upset about that. Like I, I talked to people who were like, you know, we can't believe that this small little fire is keeping us out of this, you know, giant area. So that was the story for a long time. What do you remember about your thoughts of of what was going to happen at that point? And like, you know, take me through what your thought process was as that was, a you know, a small fire, but it was still there. Exactly. It was a small fire and it, it, it didn't really grow much uh, for the first um, couple of weeks. And, uh, you know the it's just that the measurement of it got better and uh you know the the closure you know from a distance seemed excessive but the reality was the the crews were were coming at it from every angle possible they were they were coming over beachy saddle they were coming uh in you know by opal lake and then they were coming up through javelin flats and and headed in there and uh you know a lot of the closure was was as much to keep uh the access clean for for firefighting as it was for protecting the public at that time were you worried about jawbone flats like right away or throughout that time or i mean even the the projections um when you looked at some of those old documents like nobody expected it to to grow that much like even the worst case scenarios were maybe it would reach Jawbone Flats. So, I mean, did you, what was your like concern level in those early times? It, it was relatively low because the the forest is classically damp, lots of green moss and and uh, plants, and you know, it's not a fire friendly place normally, right? Also, the, the you know the prevailing weather patterns didn't. Uh, don't typically line up to drive the wind in the direction that it needed to come come our way. And, you know, the the way the fire was moving when it was up there was was slow and upslope. So it was headed up that uh, saddle that it set on. It didn't seem likely uh, that it was going to come toward toward Jodler Flats. Well, it's interesting, you know, I knew that name right away, Beachy Creek, uh, because having um, bushwhacked down from Opal Lake 
to to Jawbone Flats, Beachy Creek was always sort of like it felt like kind of a demarcation of where Opal Creek went from like a fairly heavily used area, like people would get up there to like Cedar Flats. So beyond Beecher Creek was kind of like into the much more raw wilderness where like it was kind of hard to find trails in some places. You had to start bushwhacking. Um, so I remember hearing that name and just being like, hmm, I think they're going to have trouble getting to that. I'm, I'm kind of curious how this is going to play out. Did you have similar thoughts just knowing the, the topography of that area? Yeah, in, in talking with the, the staff, some of them who had also been up in that area, you know, this summer, you know, when we when we found out precisely where it was, you know, on this knife edge ridge that, uh, you know, in a in a heavily forested area, like this is this is a hard area to get to. It's going to be very difficult to get people there, and uh, you know that turned out to be exactly the experience the Forest Service had with their firefighting teams. Yeah, so we did a, a, a very long and, and in-depth story about how the fire was was managed. And so I'm going to give a little bit of a Reader's Digest here and then just kind of kind of ask you to respond a little bit. So, you know, as we, as we talked about, the fire was spotted on August 16th and fire crews were pretty aggressive in trying to put it out right away. Um, airplanes and helicopters dropped 300,000 gallons of water on the fire in just a few days. Uh, they had hot shots and smoke jumpers that attempted to to repel down into the fire area, but they just couldn't find a safe landing zone. Uh, a few days later, a team did finally get up and, and see where the fire was on the ground, but they just decided it was too dangerous to have firefighters in there because it was basically burning on this, this knife's edge ridge, like you said, this really steep 70% slope. And the concern was that like any fire movement, they would be trapped in there or there would be rolling material coming down at them. And so at that point, the fire went quiet and they, you know, they just decided to prioritize safety. They sort of pulled the direct attack out and they kind of backed off, um, you know, in the hopes that, you know, the fire wasn't going to move much. It wasn't going to going to do too much. And eventually the autumn rains would just finally put it out. Um, the problem was that conditions just really turned hot and dry. The, the fire started to grow as we got towards September. The Forest Service, because there were so many fires burning across the West, they didn't have a lot of resources to bring in and throw at the fire as it started to grow. And so even as we got closer to Labor Day, they, they didn't have many helicopters and resources to use because, you know, there was new fires popping up all the time. You know, eventually this unprecedented winds hit and just took a fire that had grown to about 300 acres and it just exploded in a way that few fires in Oregon history ever have. And so that, that was kind of the genesis there. In writing the story, I talked to, you know, retired smoke jumpers and, and firefighters, and it was a kind of a mixed bag. Some people said, you know, the fire, the Forest Service did the best they could. Others were much more critical, saying that, you know, there was about 10 days in there when they, they should have, you know, stayed more aggressive and done whatever it took to get that fire out. I figure you've thought about this, what could have been or what should have been done. So where, where have you ultimately landed as far as, was this just something that, that happened and there's no sense in, in putting blame on it? Or do you think there's more that could have been done? Or where do, where do you land on that? I, I land that, uh, you know, the process they use to decide on ground actions, getting people in there 
to, to build a fire line and, and fight it the only real way that you can assure that it's out. Um, Decision-making is left to the hotshot crews. And that was a change um, after the tragedy that happened in Arizona, where so many firefighters lost their lives. And I, they had three different hotshot crews take a look at it. And uh, they all came to the same conclusion. There's just no safe way to, to fight that fire. And I think if they had gotten there, they still couldn't have completely contained the fire. And with the weather event that happened, any fire still burning there was going to blow up. You know, it was just an unprecedented weather event. So I would never ask one of those, those people um, to, to risk their lives to, you know, to save trees or buildings. And uh, so I thought they made the right choice. And you, you could say, okay, keep hitting it hard with, uh, with water, but, but the reality is that that's not going to put the fire out either. You know, it, what it does is it dampens it enough that they can get ground crews in. And once the, the, the possibility of getting ground crews in was answered, you know, the trying to put it out with uh, typical weather coming that would have, would have rained on it. Um, you know, it didn't really make sense. And they, they did have so many fires to deal with in, uh, in just the Willamette National Forest alone, there were, you know, so many different events going on. And if you look statewide, it was unprecedented, the number of fires. So I, I feel like the Forest Service handled it well. I, I more, as much as anybody wished that they had been successful in preventing the spread but, uh, you know, I, I don't feel that blaming them for what happened makes sense either. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's interesting because talking about the aerial firefighting thing, that is also incredibly dangerous work. And one of the things that happened right in the middle of that time period, so there's, there's about 10 days when they kind of stopped dropping as much water on it and were, you know, kind of letting it go. It was very quiet. During that time period, uh, there was a there was a helicopter pilot uh, working a fire to the north near Mount Hood who died in a crash. And that had a profound you could see in looking at the documents we looked at that that had a profound impact on firefighters statewide when you lose one of your own. And they, they grounded fire crews. But I think they wanted to be very intentional about using those those aerial resources. If they didn't think it was working, I don't think they wanted to put in that extra risk um, just, just for the sake of it. And, you know, it's just, it's just kind of one of those things. The, the winds that kicked up only happen in that way a couple times a century. And so while I did talk to some smoke jumpers who said, you know, in my day, we, we would have been more aggressive. And I think we were more aggressive, you know, in, in the old school and doing that at the same time, like other guys that I talked to said, essentially you can't manage a fire for a once in a century weather event. Like you, if you did that for every fire, you'd just never stop and it would be extremely expensive. It's not practical. So there's just, there's just, there's just so many things going on there. Um, yeah. But, but. Well, and, and you know, there's, there's no way any geographic area is going to be prepared for the, for the number of fires that, uh, 
that we had in Oregon in 2020. How do you how do you have enough pilots and enough helicopters and enough you know support people and you know they brought out everybody and uh, you know it was uh, it was hard to manage all of that. The teams were exhausted. Well, I want to mention that uh, we published a very long and detailed story about this almost almost day by day on uh, on the management of this fire and, and how everything happened. So if you want to read the entire thing, you can find it on statesmanjournal.com. You do have to be a subscriber to read it. Um, but I think it's a, a fair breakdown of what happened and why this was a, a generational thing. It wasn't about second guessing firefighters. It's just explaining what happened. Um, so anyway, Dwayne, we have touched on a lot of topics here um, from, you know, the, the future of the Opal Creek Ancient Forest Center to the, the future of the forest. Um, anything else you want people to know about where Opal Creek stands at this point or, you know, things that they should be thinking about? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it was a, an indelible uh, event for the organization, for the forest, and and for the community, not not to mention the family who who lost a loved one, the Atia family, and uh, you know the forest the forest will recover as as it does, and it will be different as it is, and and we hope to to have the same sort of resiliency that. Uh, that the forest has with our organization and, and continue to do the things that, uh, you know, help, help young people fall in love with places like this. All right. Well, that is Dwayne Canfield. He is the executive director of the Opal Creek ancient forest center. Dwayne, thanks for uh, taking some time. I know it's, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about, but, um, you know, people love this place and they, they kind of want to know where it's at at this point. So I appreciate you being here to talk through some of this. Yeah, thanks, Zach. I, I enjoyed the conversation as well. All right, that's all the time we have for this episode of the Explorer Can Podcast. If again, if you like what you heard, make sure to check us out at statesmanjournal.com slash explore. Find old episodes. We got some more uplifting episodes about some outdoor adventure, so check those out. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry and public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for the environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org. Thanks for listening.